0: How is everyone
1: awake and ready? How feels everyone
0: awake and
2: ready?
1: Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father Divine, Mother, Divine, Mother, Divine Mother, Friend Beloved God, Friend, beloved God Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ Jesus. Babaji Krishna, Krishna Lahiri Mahashaya, Swami Sri Yukteswar, Swami Sri Yukteswar Beloved Guru, Beloved Guru, Paramahansa Yoganandaji, Paramahansa Yoganandaji saints, of all saints of all religions, we humbly bow to you all. To you all. Beloved Lord, Beloved help Lord, us to offer ourselves ever more purely, ever more purely into, thy into thy light and into thy service. Into thy service. We, are we are thine, be thou Om, peace. peace. Amen. And for those of you who don't know the symbols from the Bhagavad Gita, you can sit. Uh, the conscious, at the beginning of the Bhagavad Gita, there's, uh, Krishna takes Arjuna out between the two armies. And Arjuna wants to see who the two sides are. And then the, the soldiers for the good side, the Pandavas, begin to blow their conscious. And the symbol of that is that the Pandavas represent our spiritual qualities and the conscious are the sounds of the chakras. As the energy arises rises up the spine, we hear those sounds or we have techniques by which we hear those sounds. And then being frightened by that sound, the head of the negative side tells their army to start making noises too. So they start blowing conches and banging cymbals and so on. That represents the physical body, the breath, the ego getting frightened by the inward Withdrawal of energy starts breathing heavily, or or the mind gets restless and it makes a lot of noise. So, so we're trying to go within. So we're going to blow the conscious and uh, invite the presence of the masters. <laughs> Up your fritties.
0: I have to say how lovely the choir members are looking this week.
1: Today we're going to be talking about service as a path for God and we see it around us all the time. It's nice once in a while to recognize it and appreciate it. The singers put in countless hours of rehearsal and practice and both on their own and together and then they come up and it sounds effortless and we're charmed by these angelic voices and. Uh, we can easily forget that there's uh, an act of of self-giving that goes into that. <laughs> the sound of Om in its own. See, everything is vibrating with <laughs> The and and it goes on from there. I don't want to make a laundry list, but. This temple is kept alive by service. Everything in Ananda is kept alive by service. One of the ways that the community has become so beautiful is year after year after year, we've had days in which we just go and we call them Rajasi days, and we go and we beautify the community. And I once calculated, and mind you, this was probably 25 years ago, that by that time, there had been more than 10,000 hours of service on those annual Rajasi days. And so it it just continues that when you pour energy into something, it becomes in and of itself a way of expansion into God. as I said, we're going to talk about service today. And it's something that we should actually talk about more often. And um, Devi and I are going to write a book on it, which came about in this way. As most of you know, we have a work in Brindaban. Brindaban is the city where Krishna grew up in ancient India. That's about now a three-hour drive from New Delhi, so in the north of India. And in Brindaban, thousands of widows come. In India, there isn't the social network that we have in America. And there is still some superstition. And as in all countries, there are higher and lower levels of consciousness. But one of the sad aspects of India is that sometimes when a husband dies, The wife, young or old, is put out on the street by the family, sometimes for economic reasons, sometimes through superstition, that she's bad luck because the husband died and so she must, I don't know, have cooties or something. (laughs) Anyway, it's a very sad situation. Sometimes they're highly educated, sometimes not. But very often they make their way to Brindaban and thinking that Krishna will take care of them if their family won't. And so having that thought, Krishna is not there in the form that they hope and expect. And so many of them become beggars and they just rely on handouts in order. At any rate, several years ago, Ananda started working with the widows. And now throughout Brindaban, we serve several thousand widows. Um, We make sure that they have food. We make sure that they don't need to beg. We go to their homes. We help them in their homes. We have free medical care. And we have several houses for those who don't have any other place to stay. We have uh, houses uh, and rooms for widows to stay with us. So it's a very beautiful form of service. And one day, about three years ago, uh, our two friends, Diana and Pia and Davy and I were in a restaurant. And we had the day before visited Brindaban. And we were talking about uh, the wonderful work that they were doing. And Diana was saying that the teachers were going over from uh, New Delhi and once a week they were going over and giving classes in meditation. And now several of the people on the staff had become um, become disciples. And now fast forward a year or two later, now many of them are kriyabans, And so we had been training them in, in uh, meditation arts as we typically do. And then it struck me that These people especially, their primary path is not meditation, it's service. And we have all this uh, very well thought out and very uh, complete course, taking a person from just the first interest to Kriya and then supporting them and on and on in that way for meditation. But we don't have anything of that sort for service and I realized we should have a whole training session, training methodology, the equivalent to meditation for people serving. And so um, I sat down in the restaurant and wrote out an outline for a book and with the full intention of starting it and then life got in the way. Other projects have nosed in uh, in front of that, but it's still on our uh, Davies and, and my uh, bucket list of things that we need to need to accomplish. So we've got one and a half projects before that, and then we'll get on to that, that book. But So we'll talk about some of the principles that are going to be in that book, in that training uh, course. And the first is, that service is a way, a valid way, to dissolve the ego. Remember we said that um, Swami, quoting Swami, he said that the whole of the spiritual path is meant to dissolve the ego. And yesterday we talked more about the social way. Master had a beautiful prayer summarizing the social way. I had to go home yesterday afternoon and write the blog for Friday. So I was still thinking about the class and wrote it on that, but Master had a beautiful prayer that said, teach me to love my family more than I love myself. Teach me to love my neighbors more than I love my family. Teach me to love my country more than I love my neighbors. And teach me to love the world more than I love my country. And then he went on to say, and help me open my heart and understand that I'm able to love anything only by loving you and receiving the love that you give through me. That's a beautiful prayer. I'm paraphrasing it. That's not the exact words, but you'll get the exact words on Friday. Um, At any rate, this expansion of consciousness and the dissolving of the ego that happens because of it is a very, very important pathway to finding God. And in fact, unless we serve, we won't find God. It's really that simple because if we can't get to that stage, how can we get to the stage of forgetting the self entirely. In the scriptures of India, it talks about the caste system. And the caste system has been misused, but the truth of it is that it portrays the stages of evolution of consciousness. And so there are four stages. And the first is lethargy. You're just not very bright. You don't want to put out energy. You don't have uh, any desire except to receive through the senses. And that's a very dull life. Gradually, you get more and more aware and more and more energetic, and you can become quite clever and put out lots and lots of energy, but it's all self-directed. And that's, we see that's actually the age that we're in is the age of selfish energetic but selfish age so all the people who are i don't know hurting other people in order to become wealthy are of that that nature and uh, it's it's almost like if you look at any movie the hero has finally come up from the bottom level to that second stage and that's that's kind of what we admire um, in, in the world. But that's because the world is still evolving in the consciousness that it needs to have. But you and I don't need to be caught in the web of delusion. Like the world, the next stage is that, see, each, every, everything, Master said, is driven by the single motivation that is common to everyone that motivation is to find happiness and avoid pain. And so it's how we think that we're going to find happiness. And at that stage of evolution, first stage, we think we're going to find it through, I don't know, getting drunk and having a good fight or sleeping and having somebody take care of us. The next stage, we think we're going to uh, find happiness by thinking about ourselves and doing those things that are self-involved and keeping those things. As Swami says in the festival, uh, the little bird at that stage says, what else is wisdom if not to keep what what is mine for myself? That's that second stage. The third stage is basically the stage of service. It's when we realize that our happiness depends upon helping others become happy. That if we remain self-involved and selfish, we've gone through enough incarnations to know that if we remain self-involved and selfish, it turns around and bites us. And that if we're selfish toward others, the world is gonna be selfish toward us. And finally we get tired of that level of conflict and and disharmony and discord, and we realize that our own happiness, it isn't like somebody comes with a book of laws and says you must be serviceful and unselfish. We realize that our happiness comes from that, and we begin to want naturally to help other people. And at that kind of refined level of consciousness, or refining level of consciousness, the third of the four stages, uh, we become so willing to help others that we're ready to make the ultimate sacrifice. We're ready to die in the service of others. This is the realm of the enlightened king. The true kings of India saw their kingship as not an honor, but as an opportunity to serve the people that they were responsible for. And Any leader, any good leader, should see their, their role not as a position of, oh, look at me. I'm the president. I'm the CEO of the company. They should see that as a means of helping others. That's why Master, I was reading yesterday, during the Depression, he talked very strongly against the consciousness of greed, taking to oneself and said that we cannot wipe out economic depression or even world cataclysms if we think of ourselves. We have to begin to think of others. We have to care about others. And so, we naturally come to the point where we want to begin to serve other people. Then the final stage is the stage of union with God, where we realize, who's serving who? I'm not serving anyone. The only entity in all the creation that exists is God, is Divine Mother. It's all God Serving God. There was a time when Master, toward the end of his life, he was taking on a lot of karma physically on his body. And at one point, it, he found it very difficult to, to walk. He said he could see astral entities like corkscrews going into his knees. And so uh, at this point, he was having a difficult time walking. And some of the brother monks were helping him down the stairs and he thanked them. And they said, oh, master, don't thank us. It's a joy to be able to help you. You help us so much. And he just smiled sweetly and he said, God serving God, that's his drama. Well, at that high level of consciousness, that's the only drama. It's only God serving God. But if we're not there. At least we ought to be serving others and thinking that I'm doing it. <clears throat> because until we pass, get to that stage and ultimately pass through it, we cannot expand into the sense of unity with everyone. And so service is very important. The more we serve without the thought of self, the more pure it becomes. Service is one way, one of the primary ways we have of burning up old karma and old egoic um, tendencies and and samskars, as they're called. And so that sense of service, there's a beautiful story that uh, Swamiji used to tell about a young man who comes to a guru and wants to study with him. And the guru accepts him, sees his sincerity. And then he instructs him to carry wood for the ashram, to go into the forest, find wood, bring it back for the ashram for cooking and during the cold time for heating. And so the young man does this. And day after day, and month after month, he continues doing what his guru has said. And One day he's carrying a big load of wood and he stumbles a little bit. And by this time his hair has become long and some of his hair gets caught in between a couple of the logs and is pulled out. And he looks down and he sees his hair has turned white. And he realizes I'm an old man. Here I came as a youth, to study with my guru. And I've wasted all all this time. I haven't studied at all. I haven't been with him at all." And he begins to weep. And the guru comes out and catches his tears and says, don't you realize that if the tears of such a great one as you were to fall on the ground, there would be famine for seven years. And he touches him. And the man goes into samadhi. You see, that's the kind of purity of service that brings one to self-realization, where there is no thought of self at all anymore. You're simply doing and doing what, uh, what you feel is right and performing the service, especially the God-given service that you're given. This is interesting because even Master said that he had to work at discerning what was God-given service and what was his own individually produced service. I'm gonna read you something very interesting. No, it's fine. Um, This is a letter that he wrote to Rajasi Janakananda. He said, I've been doing a million things, and I compared my divine state with work, and I found this truth. Very few of us know how to differentiate between the duties created by us and the duties assigned to us by God. Most think of their own desire-created duties as divine duties. Human desire-created duties bind and cause reincarnation. And he goes on in that way for a little while. But uh, even he says he very much wanted to create a temple in Calcutta or a, a shrine in Calcutta where he was living. And he said he put a lot of energy, but God wouldn't allow him to do it. God took him away from that and created a work in Ranchi. And he said, now I can say if all things are taken away, I will never be sorry. I wanted the temple in Calcutta, but God frustrated it by a series of miraculous happenings and gave me Ranchi, which satisfied me more than a million temples in Calcutta. Now I see, I have to always... I have always to find the divine wish and also to perform in accordance to the divine wishes. Then there is infinite joy." Then he goes on to uh, write to, he's writing to Rajasi. He said, "So you, so must you remain immersed in your business ventures and do everything, all your duties, with ever-increasing ambition to perform them extremely well without ever caring if you meet resistance or temporary failure on your path. He's really speaking to all of us here that we have a divine duty to be a channel for Master's work, just as Rajasi did, and we have to be diligent in doing that as well as we possibly can. All we must do is repeatedly try to perform the divine duties until the inner satisfaction of making the supreme effort is accomplished. First find what the divine duties are, then use your own ambition to accomplish them, asking God all the time to guide your creative efforts and will to perform them as the divine wishes." There's a last paragraph kind of different, but I'll read it. It's too beautiful not to. Oh, such joy. I don't feel any sensations making any permanent impressions on me. The ordinary man walks, sleeps, works, earns. I find I am settled in bliss. I am awake in bliss, ever watching the state of the body and mind when they are awake or asleep or dreaming. Last night I ate, and when I finished, I didn't even know I had eaten. All I knew was bliss eternal and light ever spreading. Even now, Om is bounding over my head, tying it with the starry firmament. It is all very strange, all very secret. By meditation, he makes the servant sit on the throne. Oh, this secret kingdom is yours and mine, beloved one. There is our permanent ashram, an astral hermitage, a bliss cavern. So that's the end result of doing our service. But we can't get there except by going through uh, what we have to do. The important thing (laughs) in our service is to try to have self-forgetfulness. to have the sense that it really is God serving. If if elements of pride get in, and they often do, I mean, we're all evolving. We're all doing our best. It's much better to serve, even if you're doing it so you, you want others to look around and compliment you for your service. Still much better to serve, but much better to get beyond that. There's a beautiful little story of a, woman who had two big water pots. And every day she would take them to the well and she had a yoke to carry them when they were full of water, one on each side. And one was new and brightly painted and the other was old and craft. And one day the new pot, filled with pride about its bright paint and its beautiful shape, began to tease the old pot. And the old pot was dull, and the paint had faded, and it had a big crack in it. And it it was being teased and feeling bad about itself. And the woman heard this, and she said, let me show you something. And so she picked up the two pots. She went, just as she had every day, and she filled them at the well and put them on the yoke and started walking back. And halfway along the path, she stopped and said, I want you to observe. The side of the path with the new pot is all barren. But the side of the path with the old pot with the crack is filled with flowers. Because on your way, you have been watering the other life that grows here. While the other one in its pride has kept everything for itself beautiful little parable. But we too need to be like the cracked pot. (laughs) Uh, Not the one in the other story where the saint goes and said, this pot is cracked. But no, we need to have the openings in our heart to constantly allow energy to flow through us, to go out to other people and to be constantly looking for, aware of the need. Our our son isn't on the path, but he's a very evolved soul. And one time, about two years ago, I was having a lovely conversation with him. And he said, you know, I'm always working on some quality in myself. And lately, I've been working on kindness and helping others. He said, it's not that I'm not kind, it's not that I don't help others, but I realized that I do it responsively. So if somebody asks me, then I'll go and help them. Or if somebody comes to me, I'll be kind. He said, but I realized that's not enough. I have to be, he didn't use the word, but I have to be proactive in my kindness. I have to look for opportunities. To be kind. I have to look for opportunities to serve and I have to take the initiative in doing that. And it's a very truth. It's it's truth at the core that it's not enough for us to be passive in our service. It's not enough for us to wait until somebody asks us or that we have a work day. We need to look around the world and see where people are in need. And when we see that, then we need to take the next step and act on that. And if we do that, and if we do it especially with the thought and understanding that ultimately it is God that we're seeing in that person. It is God that we're serving in that person and that we aren't doing anything at all. It is God helping God, God serving God through us, using us as the instrument. In that kind of a consciousness, there comes the self-forgetfulness that is the way to open up the heart so that the understanding that we're one with God can enter in. But until the heart is open and the heart is opened up through service, we won't achieve the readiness to receive the light and the joy and the ultimate fulfillment of self-realization that is our true destiny.
0: Do a head bump?
1: No, our hands are full, no high five today. (laughs)
0: Well, I wanted to just start by, as Jotish was saying, this community is a testimony to the power of Seva. (coughs) And I just wanted to take a moment to share some highlights in the last few years that I remember. One is the creation of this temple. And those of you who worked on it, many of you are sitting here. They have said, people, the ones who created it and built this and designed it said, we didn't feel like we were doing anything. It just happened. And we come and visit periodically. And it was always surprising because it was so quiet here. It didn't seem like a big work site and all this. It just seemed quiet. And yet every day you'd come, it was sort of like um, the cobbler and the little elves who would do the shoes at night. I thought the little elves must come in and do this because every day you come back and it was a lot more built. But one could feel there was a consciousness of serving God in building this temple. And that's part of the power that it has. And also we've been, I wanted to just honor one of our great Seva leaders Trimurti who has been leading the karma yoga program for decades training He's probably trained tens of thousands of people in the art of of seva of karma yoga with the spirit of giving it to god and he could He's, he probably won't write a book about it, but if he could collect the stories, it would be a marvelous book. But maybe we'll collaborate and we'll get stories from you when we write the book. And um, but he said there were, one woman came for several months, and she was a very wealthy woman. But she wanted her son was a part of Ananda, and she kind of wanted to learn what this place was about. So she signed up for the Karma Yoga program. And, she's, and she was, you know, washing the dishes and cleaning the bathrooms and et cetera, et cetera, all the, the seva that the Karmayogis do. And she said to Trimurti you know, at home, I have servants to do all these things. <laughs> she said, but it's so much fun doing it here. <laughs> and why? Why? And it's true, isn't it? I mean, why is it so much more fun to... Be part of a, a work day than to do the exact same tax, tasks at home. Because you're not doing it with any sense of personal obligation, oh I have to clean this, I have to cook this meal. It's just total freedom of expression. I'm doing this because I choose to do it. And so I, and then I could go on and on, but I watching the spirit of selfless service in this community, if we did nothing else, it would be enough to find pleasure and recognition in God's eyes, the spirit of selfless service that goes on in so many, many unseen ways. So I wanted to share now two stories from Autobiography of a Yogi and both with a very important point about what is seva. The first cha- one is from the chapter on Experience in Cosmic Consciousness. Master is in uh, Sri Yukteswar's ashram in Serampore, and he's been begging Shri Yukteswar repeatedly, let me experience Cosmic Consciousness, and Sri Yukteswar always kind of evades him. And then one day he's, I love the <clears throat> the little drama, he said. I was up trying to meditate in the ashram, and Sri Teshwar called me and Mukunda. And Mukunda is, he said. I was trying to meditate, and I ignored my guru's call. And then he called him very sternly. Mukunda, come here. And he said, Sir, I was trying to meditate. He said, I know how you were meditating with your le- thoughts like leaves scattered in the wind, how most of us do. And <clears throat> on a good day. <laughs> so and then he touches him lightly on the chest and you know the rest of the story. Worlds begin opening up and opening up and expanding and spanning till he perceives all of creation. Interestingly, it's a point of intuitive perception in the human heart. And then at the end of that, what happens? Shrik Teshwar says, he touches him again, and he starts coming back into the body. And he said, let us now go sweep the porch, the balcony of the porch. He says to our guru, you have much work to do in this life. You must not get over drunk with ecstasy. And master goes and fetches a broom. And, he's, and they sweep the porch, these two great avatars, sweeping the porch with a broom and then they walk by the ganges and he said i knew that master was trying to teach me the art of balanced living the soul can soar in ecstasy but still has to fulfill its earthly duties and responsibilities and so that's the first point the balanced life of having a deep inward life, taking periods of seclusion, doing your Kriya, but don't ever think that's an excuse for not fulfilling the things you need to do. And then the second story, so that's Masters with Sri Teshwar in Now he goes to Puri, beautiful seaside hermitage. Many of you have been there. We were there <clears throat> some years ago with Swamiji, and we meditated. It was quite a memorable time. We meditated in Teshwar Samadhi Mandir, where his body resides under the marble floor. And we meditated with Swami and asked him to bless our discipleship. It was there were just four of us with him. It was quite powerful. But they're at Puri and Srikteshwar is having the summer solstice festival. He had two festivals a year, the winter equinox and the summer solstice. And there Uh, Hundreds and hundreds of Sri Yukteswar's disciples are coming, and Master and some of the others are cooking for them all day long in these huge big pots, as they use in India, outside with uh, wood burning underneath. And um, and upstairs, there's a wonderful kirtan going, and Sri Teshwar is running upstairs and downstairs, instructing the cooks and then saying, oh, they're off key and running upstairs and getting the kirtan back on. And this happens all day long. And finally, the day has ended, and Sri Teshwar says to Master, I want you to know you have pleased me. Tonight, you may sleep in my bed as a blessing. And so the day is over, they've cleaned up all the pots and been working hard all day long with the smoke and the fire and the pots. And they lie down just for a moment, maybe 10 minutes past, and then Sri Teshwar pops up and he goes, oh, some of my students have missed their train. We must go and prepare food for them. And Master says, oh, surely no one would come at one o'clock in the morning. And Master says, or Sri Teshwar says, you have worked hard, you rest, I'm going down to cook. <laughs> and Master, of course, popped up. And they prepare a meal, a meal and Shrikteshwar Teshwar looks at Master and says, and let's remember these words, you have overcome fatigue and the fear of hard work. Fatigue, you have overcome fatigue and the fear of hard work. These will never plague you again. Lifelong blessing, Master said. As soon as he said that, there was a knock on the ashram. The disciples, oh, we're so sorry, Master, and Sri Teshwar. I mean, it's just so beautiful. Greeted them. Come, come, we've made food for you. We knew you missed your train. And so these are two important things to remember. Balancing a spiritual life and fulfilling earthly duties. And then to overcome fear of hard work and fatigue. What a big part, I mean it's subtle. Oh gosh, if I have to do that, think how tired I'll be at the end of the day. Uh, Some of you know this story, but some years ago, uh, Swami was moving into the dome at Crystal Hermitage, and he rounded up a group of us to help paint the interior, because it wasn't quite finished yet. And so one day we went over and we were painting and painting, And my job was, you know, the big picture window looking out on the Yuba River Valley. It has these big beams. And it was uh, very rough wood. So my job was to stain that. And it took a long time because the wood was porous. And so it didn't absorb the stain very well. And so we worked for a couple of hours in the morning. And then Swamiji said, OK, let's take a break, have lunch, come back after lunch. So we came back probably around two and we were painting and painting. Swami was painting right along with us. And then, you know, time went by. We continued doing it. We turned the lights on. It was getting a little dark. And then Swami said, okay, it's been a good day. Let's take, let's call it a day. And I looked at my watch. It was two o'clock in the morning. We had worked for 12 hours without really stopping. I've never done that before since, but Swami was showing us, all of us who were working that day, if you overcome fear of hard work and fatigue, if you forget yourself in service to God, the power that flows through you is beyond what you can imagine. It's not your power, and that's one of the keys of seva, true seva, is that We begin to work with a higher form of energy when we get the ego out of the way. And that form of energy is infinite, limitless. It's not ours, but we can jump in that stream and flow with it. So let's, I want to talk now in the time we have left, and then we'll, we have a number of very good questions that you all have submitted. I want to talk about four, four, (laughs) four points that help us understand a little bit more what is true seva. The first one is based on Master's energization principles. The greater the will, the greater the flow of energy. The greater the flow of energy, the greater the magnetism. So if you want to truly be doing seva, you can't do it from a point of low energy. It won't work for you. Your conscious needs to, your whole being needs to be charged. So if you have a big project to do, it's why we before our work days, we always energize before, we need to be in that flow of energy. Willingness draws the energy. So the greater the will, if you say yes, we will do this today. And then the energy draws the magnetism. and that's when the magic begins. because things start happening. Oh look, the right person arrived at the right time. We could tell you so many stories about building Ananda where we just, um, to paraphrase little Frodo, I will go there, but I do not know the way as he was going off in, to Mordor. And where we're asked to do something, and we say yes in a spirit of service, but we don't really know how to do what we've been asked. But if we just say yes, Then the right people come, the right tools come, the right situations come. Just as Master was saying, nothing worked out when I was trying to only do what I wanted to do or what I thought God wanted me to do. I said, I don't think he ever did what he wanted to do, but what he thought God wanted him to do. And so if we can just work with that willingness and that energy, it takes our actions to a whole other plane of activity and it makes it very, very fulfilling. Um, Just as an aside, in India now, and some of you know about this, we're working with an extraordinary project to create in Delhi, a center for dissemination of master's teachings, and particularly his uh, interpretation of the Bhagavad Gita. And it's just so amazing because We've worked very hard to focus our energy in India, to uh, serve in over challenging circumstances, and now these doors are just opening to make this thing happen in the most extraordinary ways. And I can feel it's because there's that magnetism that comes from selfless service. You can't always see the connection, but it's there. Whenever in your life things start going in a very positive way, things are happening unexpectedly, know that you're in a, a stream of grace that, that has come through your right attitude. But on the other hand, and we'll talk about this more later, if you're going through a period of your life where nothing's working out, and you think, oh, well, am I not pleasing you, God? Uh, you know, Am I on the wrong track? Not necessarily. It could be that you have to learn non-attachment, nishkam karma, not attachment to the fruits of your labors. So whether things go well or they don't go well, it really, if we pull back and are non-attached to the results, that's true karma yoga. There was, I remember once we were having a big Indian banquet. Uh, This was up at the meditation retreat and we had these big We've been cooking it for a long time. They're called coffins. They're great big metal coffins. They look like you can put a lot of food in them. And so the banquet was about to begin, and there were two people carrying this big pad, big coffin out filled with, I think it was dal, some liquidy thing. And somebody tripped, and the whole thing spilled all over the floor. And, and we just looked at it, and we thought, OK. We, we spent hours cooking this this there's no way I mean we can't mop it up and serve it to people <laughs> which someone suggested actually but it was but it was a very it was such a nice uh, we could observe our reaction that okay, it happened we have enough food no one's going to go hungry, and we just let it go so the willingness, the energy, the magnetism and Also, a big part of seva at Ananda is through team effort. I mean, we look at our choir, team effort. Look at Master's Market, team effort. Meditation retreat, sangha office, village office, on and on. Team efforts, people aligning their right attitude of service together. And that's really powerful. And there has to be harmony in that. One time, there was a woman who lived here in the early years, and she was a sincere woman, but she just had a, one might say, an afflicted personality that she couldn't get along with anybody. She was always getting in altercations with people. And um, one time she came, there had been a big blow up, and she came to Swami in tears, and she said, aren't I in tune? And he simply said, attunement is harmony. And so in our seva with others, wherever you live, whatever you do, keep that. If harmony is underlying the seva that you do, you know that it will come to a, a good uh, outcome. So that's the first point. The second point is to understand, as Jyotish said, that you need to work with attunement and with higher powers. Just always remember, I'm not doing this. How could I possibly do this? How could we, children of this world, love by our own powers, one of Swami's songs says. And if we understand that it's God doing it through us, and that we're trying as best as we can to do his will, then we go deeper into our seva. Some years ago, we were with Swamiji and we went to see I believe it was in San Francisco, we went to see the movie, a documentary about the life of Mother Teresa of Calcutta. And we all were very inspired to see the work she was doing and the evolution of it and so forth. And then we left and Swami always was taking our awareness to the next level. He never let us kind of reside in, I got it. No, no, there's a little deeper you can get. So we're leaving and he said to a small group of us, There was one sentence in that movie that was the most important sentence that Mother Teresa said. What do you think it was? So uh, (laughs) we we kind of made a few stabs at it, but we weren't right. And he said, the most important thing she said was, I do this work with the poorest of the poor because Christ told me to do it. That's why I do it. And that's the spirit of Seva. It isn't because, oh, I, my heart goes out to the poor and I want to, I mean, that was all part of it. But the most important thing was because Christ told her to do it as a young nun. And then she built the rest of her uh, mission on that charge from Christ. So to really try to tune in, what do you want me to do? And ask and try to feel his blessings on your seva and then whatever you do if it fails if it succeeds you're just doing it because Christ God Guru asked you to do it and swamiji also was always trying to show us how if we if we realize we're not doing it but God's doing it we can do so much he, recently someone sent us, Badri actually sent us a clip from a talk, I think it was a treasure's talk, and Swami was talking about, he'd been going through a period where he was very, very busy, doing many, many things. And then um, someone who was working with publications said to him, oh Swami, we're just about to celebrate our 20th anniversary. It would be wonderful if you could write a book, about Ananda's what Ananda is. And he said, please, I've just finished two or three books. I need a break. I was gonna go on vacation. And the person said, Well, it would be nice. And <laughs> and Swami Swami said, I at first I rejected it. And then willingness, what does God want? And he said, I can't do this. There's no way. My brain is tired. But master can do it through me. And he began writing the book first day. He had a week to do it. First day he got a good start on it. But then somehow there was a computer glitch and he lost everything he'd done that day. And so he started again. And by the end of the week, he had a beautiful book, which is called Cities of Light. And, but he said, I know I didn't do that book. God did it through me. So again, whenever you come to those points where you just say, afraid of fatigue, hard work, the unwillingness monster rears its ugly head, you just say, Master, I don't think I can do this, but I know you can do this. And and try to draw on that higher form of energy. And then I want to touch a little bit on three concepts that we speak of often. Seva, karma and dharma. How do they relate to each other? So let's start with karma, which means action. And you know, we often in our Kriya initiation, many of you will be taking Kriya Friday evening. We say Kriya, it's from the root word, same root word as karma, which means action. But then when we were in India, someone explained to us, it's actually not quite the same root word. Karma is that action which binds us to further karma. Kriya is that action which frees us from action, further action. So it's the action. And and just to say, if we can think of our practice of Kriya as seva, I think we'll go a lot deeper in it. To think of it as just, God, I don't have any expectations. I'm not sitting here saying I'll do this many kriyas, and then you have to give me this experience. I'm doing this in service to you, and so to karma is that root. We all, because of past actions, we have to balance out our karma. We, if we've been very overly active in one life, maybe we need to be more inward in another life. If we've been greedy, maybe we need to be selfless. You know, we're always balancing out our karma. But then how to save, and, and by doing so, we move towards freedom. That's what freedom is when you have no more karma to work out in this world. And that day will come for each one of us. But then seva is the short, the, the shortcut to work out our karma. Because we still have to fulfill our duties, but if we're, Seva is an approach to our karma. So whatever you have to do, if you're a businessman, if you're an investor, if you're a gardener, if you're, whatever you are, a manager, whatever you're doing, if that's a builder, a painter, etc. Understand that whatever you need to be doing, do it with the attitude of Seva. I'm not doing this for material gain. I'm not doing this for recognition. I'm not doing this for any personal benefit. I'm doing it merely to fulfill my duty in the world and then be free of it. And then we come to Dharma. Dharma is more a longer arc. Our Dharma is that which we have Karma is a component of Dharma. One might say it's the little building blocks that we fulfill our lifelong drama. The life arc is our Dharma, that which we came into this world to doing. Karmas are the little building blocks that help us to do that. So let's say our Dharma, like Swamiji, was to be a writer. And that's what Master said. You're your work in this life is writing, editing, and lecturing. Well, there were countless numbers, lectures, edited pages, books written. Those were the building blocks that helped him fulfill the arc of his dharma. And your dharma may be great and exalted and get you world recognition, or it may be totally obscure. No one ever knows about it. It really doesn't matter one bit. It's you fulfilling what you need to do in this lifetime. And we have to do it as well as we can, but with this right spirit of Seva-nishkam karma, action without the desire for fruits of action. And even if we, there's a wonderful passage in the Gita where it says, it is better to fail at your own dharma than to succeed at someone else's. And because if you succeed in someone else's dharma, maybe it's their dharma, we say, I'm going to be just like Swami and I'm going to be a writer and a lecturer and an editor, but maybe your dharma is to be a mother and a housewife. And if you do that in the right spirit, it's more spiritually beneficial than if you try to do somebody else's dharma and maybe even succeed at it. Maybe you fail at your own dharma, But the Gita says, interestingly, better to fail at your own dharma than to succeed at someone else's. Because in our own dharma, we are working out our own karma, and we are learning the lessons we need to learn. Somebody else's dharma won't teach us that. And so it's such a freeing concept, all of these things. There isn't one right way, but there is an approach that will bring us deeper and deeper toward self-realization. This is the path of seva. And then finally, the last point I want to talk about, and this is a collective experience, what is Ananda's seva? Well, we've been talking these last several days of our time together about the different paths. One, and we've emphasized quite a bit yesterday, the building of World Brotherhood communities. Ananda seva, Ananda's seva, is to create these communities and centers, urban centers and communities, rural communities, all of the above. And by doing it in with several points in mind, in a spirit of seva so that there's not what am I going to get out of at the end of the day but we are doing something as Mother Teresa said something beautiful for God and that's why we do it but then also and this is something that it's interesting being in India this is kind of a real revelation to them to combine as Master wanted us to do Modern Western efficiency and practicality with Indian spirituality. This is Ananda Seva to demonstrate a new way of creating things. And you know, again in India, they're kind of surprised at how practical we all are. And oh, you know about uh, financial things? Uh, Yeah, we do, as a matter of fact. And we would have work days and literally people would send their servants to come and participate in the work days, you know. And, and one young woman, very good friend of ours, and I hope you're not listening, but um, <laughs> she, they were having a work day at the new center in Mumbai, and she showed up and never had been at a workday before. Um, and she, they said, she said, what, what can I do? And they said, oh, well, just like Sri Teshwar said to Master, you can mop the floor. And she looked and she said, how do you use a mop? <laughs> Which end do you hold it up? You know, she, I think she was going to use the stick end to mop the floor. I don't know. But anyway, she had no idea how to use a mop. And what Ananda is demonstrating is God in action. Don't be afraid of hard work and fatigue. We can do it. And we can show that you can have your your mind uplifted with God, your heart, giving everything, you all of your actions to God, but at the same time with practical efficiency. And this is a new model. This model does not exist yet in the world at large. And so this is a defining thing of Ananda's seva, doing the will of Babaji, Christ, Master, to build these communities in a spirit of selflessness, of working with God's energy, of getting ourselves out of the way, of not expecting anything in return. It's so beautiful to live this way. And you know, I was sitting here as Dotish was speaking, many of you are young and you've come in the last number of years, but I was looking at some of my friends who, just as Jotish described, the man carrying wood, whose hair has turned gray in the service of their guru. And my prayer for each of you is, I hope you live to see the beauty of people you know, tra- how they are transformed in the service of their guru. Because it's the most beautiful sight in the world to see a soul that has not lived for self, but only lived for serving God and what they become after years of living this way. So thank you all for your life. And thanks to those who are coming, following in our footsteps, who are following in the footsteps of Master and Swamiji. And may we all continue to grow in our seva and our service to God and Guru, and may what Ananda becomes, be a light into this world. Okay. Before we, thank you, thank you. Before we begin our questions, we have some nice ones today. We had nice ones yesterday too. <laughs> we have more today. Um, I was asked to make this announcement that some of you are here for the first time. And um, I don't want to embarrass you, but if you're here for the first time, would you please stand? So we can, oh, wonderful. Welcome. And there's going to be a tour of the community starting tomorrow, Thursday at 1.30. You can meet over at the front desk at the reception center and one of our community members will tour you around. And it's especially for first timers, but I would like to say Ananda is always changing. Even if you were here last year, it's quite different than it was last year. So it's not only for first timers. If you'd like to go on this tour, please feel free. So that's meeting tomorrow, Thursday, 1.30 at the front desk at the reception center. And now questions.
1: How can we choose between multiple selfless service opportunities that are happening <laughs> at the same time? that other gurubais are asking us to do. <laughs> Anybody experienced that? <laughs> and is there ever a time when we may know of help to give selflessly that others may not know is needed yet? What do we do about it? Well, let's take the first one. You can only do a certain amount of activity and do it well. You know, there was a a very interesting thing where uh, the father of Bill Gates, uh, Bill Gates was a good friend of Warren Buffett, and they were having dinner together, and the father of them asked them both to write down the one thing, in one word, the secret of their success, both of them enormously successful, after a time they wrote their word down, they both wrote the same word, focus. And so there's only a certain amount of things that we can do, otherwise we disperse our energy and it always stays shallow. So I would say that you can't always respond to everybody's asking you to do something we know from experience that it's very hard in Ananda to say no. It's just not our, I don't know, our cultural uh, practice to say no to things. But we can say, I'm busy doing something else and I can't do that right now. We do have to do some picking and choosing. So I would say, find an area of service and try to go deep in that area of service and do it really, really well. Then if you have extra bandwidth, go ahead and accept other areas, um, other things that you're asked to do, too.
0: Let let me respond to that before you go on. Okay. Okay. Uh, One of the things we should have included, and this gives us the opportunity, is concentration and focus as a part of seva. Because without, and again, it's what sets it off from just doing uh, casual activities. I know in the early years of Ananda, many of us worked in the gardens with Hanel Cassidy, who trained us in gardening, and we would have uh, one of the jobs I'm looking at a, a distance was to weed the rows of new carrots and you plant carrot seeds very, very thickly because they come up and then you have to weed them. And the rows, they probably were the span of the temple. They felt more like they were 10 miles long. <laughs> and you had to just sit on the ground and then pull, try to pull out the baby, you know, the little seedlings so that more could, the ones that existed could grow stronger and have room to grow. And you could spend all day on one row of carrots, and you had to keep concentrated. Though sometimes we get new people in there, and and I remember Hannel said one time someone they pulled up all the carrots and left all the weeds, and <laughs> so you had to stay focused. But I know at the end of the day, when I would sit to meditate, all I saw were baby carrots, <laughs> it was so vividly in my mind, and that, but. I don't think I ever concentrated on anything so much in my life prior to that. So whatever you're doing, it's not so much about quantity, it's quality. Go deep, go deep in whatever you're doing with full concentration. And that's, that is touching the hem of seva.
1: Is there ever a time when we may know of help to give selflessly that others may not know is needed yet? What do we do about it? Not quite sure what that means. If it means that someone else needs help and they don't know it, um, you can do it, but do it very gently and secretly, because if they don't know about it yet, you don't want to override their sense of ignorance. Or, you know, the, the sense, the sense, look ma, I'm, I can ride my bike myself. You know, they're, they're, they're still thinking that they can do that. And so let, let that be, because self-confidence is a very important part of life experience.
0: Or if this question means, uh, if you know an area that needs service, what should you do about it? Tell the people directly in charge This often happens, like people will come to us and they'll say, they really need to do this in the market. And I'll say, well, maybe they do, maybe they don't. Why don't you tell them? And so go to who's involved with doing the project.
1: Okay, we'll move on a little more uh, quickly. How can uh, you continue to support someone even when you know what they are doing may be harmful to themselves and others or is adharmic? You can support the person and not support the action. And that's a very, very important distinction to make. Um, You may know somebody that is doing something that is self-destructive. Well, it wouldn't be good to go to that person and say, oh, I think that it's just wonderful that you're drinking beer. Um, (laughs) Gee, what a a fine occupation. (laughs) You shouldn't support that action. But you can go to the person and and support them as an individual. If you can raise their consciousness high enough, then the desire to do something self-destructive will fall away. Swami, one time someone came and uh, there was a person who was uh, very often kind of, um, irritating other people. And so people came and complained to Swami about it. And he said, I'll, I'll I'll do something about it. What did he do about it? Invited that person to dinner, never mentioned any of their faults, never mentioned any, but he raised the consciousness. And that was his way of helping overcome. So help the person, but don't Necessarily help the person to continue uh, uh, a dharmic or self-destructive activity. I'll
0: take the second. You do. What are this is part second part of the question or second question? What are some ways to attract prosperity if you are having difficulty making ends meet? Well, well, it's a good question following on talking about seva, because. If you are living your life in such a way that you're thinking of others, you're putting out good energy, you're trying to concentrate and use focus in what you do to uh, put out energy, willpower, energy, magnetism, you will see, and we have seen this at Ananda uh, a dozen times over, that you will draw to you the things you need. And so if you're only thinking about, oh, I don't have this, I don't have that, and I've got to shore up my investments and all that. That is being done with the spirit of limitation. But if you think God, and this is something that Master says, God knows what you need at the time that you need it. And I have seen this so many times in my life. In the early years of Ananda, we lived very much hand to mouth. It's easier now, but in the early years, it really was not easy. And I remember once, uh, Swami invited a group of about 12 of us. um, Oh, would you like to go on a vacation to Hawaii? Well, this was beyond anything in our budget that we could do. And we didn't have credit cards in those days. And so, of course, we all said, yes, Swami, that would be wonderful, not knowing at all how we were going to pay for this. But we just were part of his flow of the possible. And we booked our tickets, paid for them, got our reservations, lodging, everything. We were there for two weeks and I never could figure it out. But I paid all my bills, wrote all the checks, paid all the, and at the end of the month there was the exact same amount, which was nothing, which there always was. (laughs) But somehow inserted in that was a vacation to Hawaii. And it really was an incredible experience for me because I just thought, Oh, it's not what you think it is. It's the spirit of, this is possible. So if you're having trouble ends me, just work with God. Give to others. Tithe. Honestly, tithing, and I'm not saying this for any, uh, please, for any ulterior motive, except I know people who tithe have prosperity in their lives. Whatever you tithe to, you could tithe to the Humane Society. It doesn't matter but give something of what you have to others, and that will increase the flow of prosperity in your own life. Can you talk on when Yogananda
1: left the body after his lecture? Had he completed his mission? Was he aware that he needed to leave the body? Yes, he had completed his mission. Yes, he knew he was going to leave, and he told a few people that it, it was coming time and he was about to, about to leave. It's interesting that um, many of the masters uh, have left their body relatively younger than other people. They didn't come with any karma. They came with a specific mission, and, and uh, in his case in particular, yes, he had completed his
0: mission. I'll take this one and you All take right. the next one. Okay. Did Swami Kriyananda reach a level of freedom when he left the body? Would he have reached self realization? Well, he was very, very guarded in what he said about this. But he would drop little hints. Like one time, someone asked him, because he had so many physical problems, someone asked him, Swamiji, are you taking on the karma for others through your physical body? And he paused and he said, we all have to do our part, which is saying, this is what I can do. And so I am doing it. He also said at the end of his life, I'm in bliss all the time. He said, I feel so much bliss. I can barely know what I'm supposed to do. So, and then also Jatish mentioned, um, I believe in the Monday class about this saint in India, not of our lineage, but who spoke with Narayani and Shrijo, and he said, you have no idea who Swami Kriyananda is. He said, you have no, and I believe this. He said, you have no idea how hard it is for, keep it, for him to keep his consciousness down so that he could build Ananda and help all of you. It's an effort all the time on his part. And I do believe that's true. So has Swami found freedom? You connect the dots. I'll just, in my, to my estimation, he was a liberated being by the end of his life.
1: OK, Swami appointed or indicated Jyotish many years in advance who will succeed, uh, uh, indicated that I would be the Dharmacharya. So who will succeed me as Dharmacharya, (laughs) is the question. We have our eyes on some candidates, that's all I can say. (laughs) It seems like Swami made it apparent, but Swami did not make it apparent uh, until very close to his death. People assumed that it would be me. But Swami didn't say that, and honestly, I was mildly, just mildly, but mildly surprised in his will when he named me the Dharmacharya, because I was just doing what he had asked me to do and had been doing it for a lot of years. And um, so I, uh, as I say, I, I was not at all certain that that I was going to be the Dharmacharya. And if he'd chosen someone else, it's not as if there would have been great disappointment in the Novak household. (laughs) But what what God asks, we try to do. So um, also, there's a missing generation at ananda you know there in in swami's case i'm 17 years younger than swami that means that somebody would be like 60 years old now we don't have many people in that age range or or 50 to 60 let's say it's like there was a missing generation and so we're looking more toward the generation that's below that. Um, And we'll just see, as I say, we have our eyes on some candidates and are giving them more and more, helping them to have more and more responsibility and um, see what God's will actually is in this matter.
0: I'm going to answer a little bit to that question because it, it Jyotish answered it from his perspective, but I'll answer it from the perspective of someone once removed. And I think it was very clear to everyone that Jyotish would be Swami's successor. But I think he also kept it veiled from Jyotish because he didn't want him to, um, I don't know, get all tied up about it. And towards the end of Swami's life, he said to us, I'm sorry for the responsibility that I'm giving you. I'm sorry for all that it will entail." but um, So I think that's true to say, to qualify it, that it was apparent, but Swami kind of veiled it so it wouldn't be, I don't know, like a hierarchy or a succession. So I think that's important to say.
1: Okay. <laughs> Two different viewpoints, then maybe it, maybe it was failed. But I never assumed. I'll put it that way.
0: Now, this is an, uh, more of a lighthearted question. Why do you think Master said not to wear hats? <laughs> Even wool or silk hats? Mm-hmm. You know? If you know what they're referring to, we read that article yesterday about communities. And Master said, go barefooted and don't wear hats. Well. <clears throat> Well, remember, he was, a master is not limited by time and space, but he also was talking to people in the 30s and 40s, where it was much more formal. Men wore suits and ties, and women wore heels and stockings, and, and all these ridiculous little hats that people wore in those days. And so I think he was trying to break out of that mold. You know, just be free. Let the wind blow in your hair. Don't, don't be you know, kind of bound by social convention. Of course, if it's a cold day, he wouldn't tell us not to wear a hat. <laughs> but it was more, I think, a sense of breaking through from social customs and expectations of the time.
1: Yeah, I think that's very true. And, and uh, you know, there was kind of a formality to it. There's an amusing story, uh, where one time, uh, someone gave master a very expensive, I think a cashmere overcoat and a hat and he he didn't like the luxury of it and so he prayed for a divine mother to take it away. And so they went to a restaurant and in those days you checked your coats and hats and you got a little ticket. And so he came back and the ticket the person came back and said, I'm very sorry, sir, but I can't find your coat. Your hat is still there, but I can't find the coat. It seems to be missing. And Master said, he just kind of silently said, oh, Divine Mother, why didn't you take the hat too?
0: It may have been that day where he said not to. Yeah, (laughs) right. Okay, last one.
1: Okay, last one. If one has taken a vow to live one's life completely for God, and this person lives in an Ananda community and works and earns money outside Ananda, what is the proper attitude towards sharing money toward one's final years and giving all extra income to serve Ananda and others? Well, each person has to decide on their own. The key here is that you're all of us need to work toward being unattached and to recognize that what what we have is given to us by divine mother it isn't ours by, by right and if we hoard that onto ourselves then divine mother is going to stop giving us that money so i would say at the very least people in the community should tithe and as davy said This is a spiritual principle. It's not a monetary principle. It's the principle that if you think that what you have is yours, then you separate yourself from the flow of the divine. If you recognize that what I have is given to me by Divine Mother, given to me by God, and I first want to, in recognition of that, offer back, And do it regularly. It isn't enough to do it one time and and say, well, I'm done with that stuff. You, You need to constantly offer back to God. Now, should we save for retirement? Yes. If we have the opportunity to do so, we should save for retirement. That's a good thing. Swami set up Ananda in such a way that it wasn't just communal, that we uh, had individual responsibility, and that was so that we could take care of our, uh, uh, put out the energy necessary to take care of ourselves. But the balance really is a balance between um, I don't know, it's it's your own karma. But I would say, if you have to err, or on the side of excessive generosity, because I can tell you from Davies and my personal experience that the more we have given, the more comes to us. Honestly, at this point in our lives, I don't know. I, I don't want to say the figure, but we gave a very large percentage of our of our income from last year. We gave gave to in donations, but whatever we give away, more comes to us. We can't give it away as fast as it comes in. And so I don't want to personalize it too much, but there is a principle here that the more you offer back in service, not not just frivolously, in service and, and properly, the more will flow into you. Because if we're like a beggar, and we hold up our cup and say, fill up my cup, fill up my cup. Divine Mother may do that. But how much can your cup hold? Be like a hose and say, flow through my hose. And Divine Mother can flow a whole ocean through a hose that's large enough. Whereas a cup can only hold
0: a cup's worth. Okay, so let's take, let's take a few minute break be quick because we're running late. And I'm going to just ask, people like to remain quiet in the temple. So let's not have conversations in the temple. If you want to talk, then go out in the foyer. And if you want to take a break, and
2: we'll come back here in a few, in less than five minutes and start meditating.